Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations as we delve into the very large and often controversial topic of giants, uh, specifically looking at that Genesis chapter 6, the first few, few verses in Genesis chapter 6, where it talks about things like the Nephilim and the sons of God and the wider context around that. Um, it's great to see people already here and already in the comments, and uh, we're joined by John. Mackay. We're joined by Dr. Diane Eager, Craig Hawkins, and Sam Jenkins today as we delve into this topic. Sam, of course, will be looking after all of your questions because we're doing something just slightly different today. Um, it's a big topic. Uh, it's a topic which has a lot of area that needs covering. We will not come close to covering every single aspect of it in just this program tonight. We're probably going to run over time. Uh, you remember how we used to do the hour and a half, pro well, we used to do the two-hour programs. We've shortened it recently to the hour and a half programs. We're probably going to go back up to the two-hour program tonight. It really just depends on how we get through uh, quite a lot of content that we have prepared to go out today. Um, as a result of that, we're probably going to do one very large question and answer time towards the end. It really depends whether there's a natural break that comes up as we share content, because all uh, or four of us today uh, will be sharing content, and Sam will be looking after your questions in the chat box and comments. So do get keep getting your questions in. Uh, do get those comments in as well. They'll be looked after by Sam, and uh, we will be having a good question answer time towards the end, even if it is uh, does take a little bit of time for us to get to that area. So without further ado, let's dive straight into this big topic. And I have to say, it is a big topic, and there's lots of different and very strong opinions out there around this kind of an issue, this question of the Nephilim, the giants, the sons of God, uh, whether the word giants should even have been used in the first place. Now, we've dealt with the topic of giants twice before on creation conversations, um, but we've never really delved down into the Hebrew and the Bible study side of things. We've looked at giant animals, we've looked at giant people, we've looked at Goliath and, uh, you know, the sons of Anak and stuff like that, and that will certainly come into our discussions, but we're dealing a little more with the biblical side of things today. Now, I first came across this topic, I always thought it was one of those topics which we'd probably never get to a complete answer to, but I was convinced that it had something to do with angels and demons and all that kind of thing. And uh, I remember being challenged by John, actually, about six or seven years ago now, um, when I was first getting involved in uh, with creation research, and really I was preparing to move from part-time ministry into full-time ministry. I spent, uh, it was getting on for three, three to four months uh, with John pretty much one-on-one. -on -one. There was one little break in the middle where uh, John had to disappear home and I was left on my own for a little bit, but uh, pretty much four months one-on-one -on -one with John. We started in Australia and Queensland. We travelled all the way down by car, right? 600 odd kilometres on a single road sometimes, all the way down uh, to the south of Australia, down through Melbourne. We went and visited Craig in Tasmania and up to South Australia and up to the Red Centre. We went all over the place. And one of the things that we did during this 
this sort of three, four months on the road together is every morning we'd sit down and have a Bible study. And um, one of the these days, the topic of giants came up and I said to John, well, of course, we probably don't know what it means, but it certainly has something to do with angels and demons. And it certainly has something to do with why God sent the flood. And John said to me, does it really? And I said, well, yes, it does. That's what it says. And he says, can you go and find where it says that the fallen angels and demons caused the flood? Now, I spent three or four hours digging through the Bible and I couldn't find it. And so then John challenged me and said, well, what about the sons of God and the fallen angels? And can you go and, and show me how we know that those are definitely angels? And again, I went and sat through the Bible and we dug through the Bible for a while and I couldn't come up with a conclusive answer. So instead I went back to John and I had to go with humility and say, all right, I give up. I can't quite get it. Can you help me, please? And so for the next three or four days, actually extended into quite a few weeks of Bible study, we were going, you know, verse by verse through Genesis and it was a great time. And I'd, I I pray that one day we'll have the opportunity to do that again. Uh, and if you want a sneak peek at this kind of study, that's basically this idea of going verse by verse. Um, is what um, walking with Jesus through Genesis was actually based off. But we spent a good number of time starting to dig through the scriptures around this concept of the sons of God. Now, it's been a fascinating study, um, and it's something that I followed up with quite a lot since then, and we've been discussing things with John, and we're going to tell you about a little project that we've been working on as well, and we'll continue to work on greatly in a little bit. But um, I must admit, over the years that we've discussed this, the question that has always been in the back of my mind is, well, does this really matter? What's the big deal about this? Surely there's going to be different types of opinions. Well, one of the things that we're hoping to deal with today is this question of why does this matter? Why is it important to start with scripture and remove any preconceived conceptions or ideas about what sections of scripture mean before we actually start to dig through it. So we're going to try and actually get to that as an ending point. Uh, we're starting with this challenge that John gave me a few years ago. We're going to move through studying the scriptures and we're going to end with this challenge of why does this topic actually matter? And in between, we're going to deal with everything like the sons of God and the giants and the Nephilim and the King James versus so on and so forth. And we've even got a really fascinating little uh, biology study in the middle as well from Diane about giants and a little history study from uh, Craig about the giants through scripture. So it should be a wonderfully fascinating delve through all things giant related. But we're going to kick things off first and foremost, going over to John to really start with, well, we're dealing with the old King James. Is that right? Uh, we will read from the King James to start with, Joe. And I'm really glad to see you've got your right name back. So thank you, Doki Doki and the others who pointed out that thank he you. wasn't Sam. And uh, Sam, apologies to you because uh, Joe's sort of covered in fuzz and you're a clean shaven man. So anyway, thank you, Joe, for that introduction. And uh, you may have noticed, and I'm sure Joe has, that when God called me into his kingdom, uh, it was through a science textbook by an atheist and he was poking fun at the Bible. So I picked up the Bible to see what it was about. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't consult the church. I didn't consult the, the Bible commentaries because A, I didn't go to church. B, my dad was an atheist. C, I didn't know what a commentary was. If you if you paid me, I couldn't have told you what one was. So I started to read at Genesis and it has become my modus operandi since then to actually start with the Bible at all times. Now, you'll find uh, questions may come up on what this commentary says, that, that commentary says, well, I've discovered one thing. 
the Bible is the best commentary on most commentaries. All right. So you will notice our, our emphasis on starting with scripture. Now, in my day, yes, I'm, I'm getting moderately old now. Um, I'm just a bit older than uh, uh, Joshua was when he was sort of leaving Egypt and things like that. But the interesting thing is, when you look at the Bible, it's the same. It's the same. The content wise, no matter what version you're using, provided it's a faithful translation. But we're going to start with the book that actually introduced this giants on a wide scale. And that's the King James. There's no doubt about it. Before that, the Wycliffe Bible and that. Uh, what did they say? We will talk about that. And uh, But what influence did it have? Because it was so restricted. Once you get the printing press and you get the King James authorised, then many of our thoughts are in, in the English language, particularly, are based on the text of the King James. So let me read to you from Genesis chapter 6. And it came to pass... When men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair and they took them wives of all they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive for man for that he is also flesh. Yet his day shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, they bear children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, if you know the rest of Genesis chapter 6, you know this is the introduction to the flood. And yes, we will be dealing with was the flood uh, sent because of the demonic interactions that were happening now, or is that just a fictional fairy tale view of Genesis. What's really going on? There's no doubt about it. Noah is just about to be introduced in the in the ark and the building and the and the time of the flood and things like that. And so it is to deal with a judgment that's coming. But the introduction has several things that I challenged Joe over. Uh, who wrote it? Uh, how do we know what it says? Is it referred to anywhere else? Oh, there's a couple of things. It says there were giants in the land in those days and also after that. That's our key verse. You see, whoever wrote this, you could say Moses wrote it. Well, that's interesting because Moses' name does not appear in Genesis. But Moses' name definitely is associated with what's become known as the second batch of giants, or if you like the Hebrew, the second batch of Nephilim. And there's all sorts of interesting thoughts about the Nephilim, including some uh, which have a connection to the book of Enoch, where they were huge in stature. You know, um, in, in the in the old imperial system, which would have been used in King James' time, you know, up to 300 feet long or bigger than the ark. And they survived the flood by hanging onto the outside. And, and what's interesting is you get such imaginative stuff said about Genesis. But coming back to my testimony, you see, when I became a Christian, no, it wasn't through the church. No, I wasn't really evangelized. Nobody grabbed me to the side and said, you must repent and receive Christ. I actually read that through the scriptures as I got from Genesis all the way through to John. And then I decided to go to church. It was interesting because with a family name like Mackay and a Scottish background, there were several things happening in that church that struck me as odd. Number one, 
because I'd only studied the Bible, it seemed most of the Christians went to church, but they didn't study the Bible. And me, the new guy, seemed to know a lot more about what was in the Bible than what they knew. Or they probably knew their doctrine, their catechism. All those things are great, by the way, but they didn't know what the Bible had to say. How do I know that? Because I'd been there for a few months and there was a Masonic Lodge march. The Masons paraded up the middle of the church. And I looked at this uh, and I thought, this is odd. You see, with a name like Mackay and being of Scottish background, my family's been up to their eyeballs in Masonic stuff for centuries. And uh, I, as a musician, had also played music at the Masonic Lodge. And I knew what it was about from practical, pragmatic experience. And the thing that struck me was these guys in the middle of the church and nobody was raising any objection and I'd just become a Christian a little while ago. I'd read the Bible through from cover to cover by that time, convinced that I must go to church, convinced that I must be baptized, all of those things, and convinced that the Masonic Lodge was way out on left wing with just pseudo-Christian connections. Oh, yes, you see, one of the things I did know was the Masonic Lodge, if you wanted to belong to it, you must not mention the name of Jesus Christ. And yet he was I as a Christian go into the world and preach the gospel and preach them about Jesus. So my standard for judging things wasn't what was being done in the church. My standard for judging things wasn't what was done in the commentaries. My standard for judging things was, hey, when the scripture tells me to tell others about Jesus and the Masonic Lodge says I mustn't mention his name lest I offend all the brothers who aren't Christians, then the Masonic Lodge has to go. So what about the issue of giants and things like that? What about some of the um, stories that are associated with it and some of the claims, um, huge numbers of claims? And as Joe said, we won't get up to all of them today. But for those of you who really enjoy the program, we've been discussing it amongst ourselves. We've been discussing it with our artists. And yes, we are aiming to put it all into a book so that you can benefit um, because there is no such book covering all of these things. Um, okay. Uh, let me try and get my slides up here. Okay, are we on? Already on, on the screen. Good, okay. There's our words, giants, angels, Nephilim. And the thing I've also noticed, and I'm very grateful to the education department, much against my will, even though I wanted to major in science, when I wanted to get involved in education, they made me take English. Yes, Shakespeare, the works, but I'm glad they did. It gave me a look at where words came from. Giants, why do we use it in King James? Uh, there it is. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. So again, the key point, whoever wrote this, and Moses' name is not mentioned, knew about a second lot of giants, a second time when giants were there. But what about the rest of the verse? You see, are there fallen angels? Well, the Bible talks about de demons. The Bible talks about Satan and his angels. Can they mate with women? What happened? Uh, there's some of the common issues. When I first got introduced to this subject, um, I think it was in a Pentecostal church where I was preaching. 
Um, they told me all about the fallen angels who had mated with women and they had giants as children. It was all part of Satan's scheme. I heard from a, a Baptist in the USA to destroy God's godly line of kids and families that would lead to Jesus Christ. And this would mess up God's plan. So God sent a flood to destroy the uh, giants. That's some of the commonest things that have come up. And of course, nowadays it's expand aliens, NASA, spaceships. And uh, no, we won't cover everything today, but it'll be interesting. There's the four things we're going to deal with in the book. The background of this, when, where, what, who, how, why, the history of thought, all of those things. But for today, let's start with why King James and why the word giants. There it is again. Note the date, 1611. It's the, the major reason why this is an issue is because the King James was a printed Bible and it was made freely available and the king authorized it, hence the word authorized. It was a copy in every church. You could actually go there and, yes, usually chained to, to the, the pulpit and you could have a read if you could read. But it was so widely spread. In fact, many of our phrases in English, like it's only a drop in the bucket, they come straight out of the King James Bible. Okay, you probably won't recognize what that translation is because it's the Proto-Hebrew from before 600 BC. Yes, we do know what's in it, even if you can't read it. Uh, this one is more common. After 585 BC, you have the Hebrew. Oh, you'll, Have you noticed, by the way, that Hebrew reads from right to left, not from left to right? And I've marked out one word which is interest to us. So let's have a look at this. Now, that word is the word Nephilim. Um, that's not the word giants. Uh, it's the word Nephilim. And you say, I can't read Hebrew. Well, you'd be surprised how closely it is connected to both. the. I mean, let's have a quick look. There's, by the time you get to the Septuagint, uh, it's got the word giants in it. Uh, giants, yeah, Y-I-Y -Y is how you'd read it, then A, then a V, then T-E-S. Well, the T-E-S is still there in giants. The A is still there. Uh, if you make the Y a G, then you get gigantes, G-I-G-A-N-T-E-S. Um, let's keep going and see what happens. When you look at that, yes, you can recognize some of the letters in the Greek, but you still can't think of how you could connect that up to the Hebrew. By the time you get to the English, that's being translated, albeit Wycliffe, bless his heart, a marvelous man of God. He translates it via the Vulgate, the Latin edition, which came via the Greek edition of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And uh, he says, soothly, giants were on the earth in those days. Forsooth after that. Now, I'm very grateful that I was forced to study Shakespeare and I was forced to read Chaucer. Now, if you've never had to read Chaucer, I can't really recommend it because it doesn't even look like modern English at all. But there's Wy Wycliffe. Yes, a marvellous man of God, but no printing to make his Bible easily accessible. By the time you get to Tyndale, early 1500s, there were tyrants in the world. Tyrants? That's not the word giants. Neither is it the word demons, neither is it the word angels. There were tyrants in the world in those days, for after that. 
And the reason I bring Tyndale up is uh, I've got a copy of every one of these in my files, originally both in, in print and uh, now on, on, on my computer and so many more versions. But Tyndale is the guy who gave us the first English translation from the original Hebrew. Then you get to King James and it's back to the word giants based largely on what the Septuagint, or largely, sorry, on what the Vulgate had actually had to say. Notice the change here by 1901. Now, in the American Standard Version, they've swapped back to the word ne or swap. Now, that's not the right word because nobody's used it in English. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also after that. Now, Nephilim is a word that's bandied around in this discussion. Is it giants? Is it demons? Is, is it angel? Is it the offspring? What's going on here? But an interesting trend has happened. We've gone from tyrants in the first English translation to giants swapping back to the Septuagint and, uh, and to the uh, Vulgate. And now we've gone to uh, giants in King James and then Nephilim uh, in the ASV. By the time you have a look at the Jewish Bible, Nephilim, uh, spelled a little differently, but that's because it's Jews who are reading it, uh, who think English, but uh, they've, they've, you know exactly what they're talking about. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. By the time you get to the ESV, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Now, what's actually going on that would force people to use that instead of the word giants? There's your Holman Christian Standard. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterwards. Now, wherever you see a trend to change words in the Bible, um, particularly when it's a trend to go back to just transliterating. Now, those of you who uh, don't know that word, it just means you take the Hebrew word and you actually put the English letters that are equivalent to it. But because you don't want to translate it as giants because perhaps it may not mean that. And that's what's become standard. Let's put the Nephilim back in and delete the Latin word and the Greek word, the giants. Why? Okay. There's some of the reasons. If you just read Genesis chapter 6, and this is what Joe and I had a talk about when he said, oh, these giants came from, from the angelic beings mating with the women. I said, what giants? And he said, well, the giants in Genesis. I said, well, how big are they? Do you realize in Genesis chapter 6, there's no description of these people? There's a description of their activities. They certainly became famous, but there's no size mentioned. There's no angels mentioned. There's no demons mentioned. Now, I know some of you will react to that, but if you just had Genesis chapter 6 and you're in a court of law, you'd have to concede that the prosecution is right. Where's your angels? Oh, there's Nephilim. Oh, no, don't assume Nephilim means angels because it may not. Um, where else is it used? Is there any size of these giants? No. All of that comes from a second batch of giants. Oh, sorry, Nephilim. Uh, can you do that? In fact, that's one reason why you're seeing the Bible's translations swap back to just transliterating it. It's not as obvious as the King James makes it out to be. There's a second lot of giants post-flood. Oh, you know about these. There's Goliath and there's young David with his sling. And by this time, there's not many giants on the earth. You know, there's second lot of giants. There can't be many of them. 
because if there was hundreds and hundreds of these giants, they were a separate giant race, if you want to call it that, um, the Philistines would have sent them all out. Why bother having a challenge? Well, the fact is there were so few. There's Goliath and his family, and it's not long after David reigns that all the giants are eliminated from the earth. But Diane will be talking about human giantism um, and, and we'll be bringing up, were there any angels and demons associated with these Nephilim? Okay, so why the word Nephilim? There it is in yellow at the end. Now, I'm really grateful to people like Dr. Alan Hall. Um, I remember saying to him and to uh, Dr. Charles uh, at the time, listen, I don't want to be able to translate Hebrew, but I do want to be able to see what you guys are doing. Give me a course in biblical Hebrew. Now, again, remember you're starting from the right-hand side. Now, have a good look at that. And as much as you think Hebrew looks so different, and but in its history, it's got a lot in common. Latin, Greek, um, Hebrew, surprise, surprise, they all change symbols. They all swap things. The Hebrews, uh, um, you know, it, it's interesting. The vowels in the Greek language uh, that don't show up in Hebrew, etc. cetera. Uh, you, you can ask all sorts of questions, but let's help you. Can you see the N on the right-hand side? Uh, can you see the E? Uh, just turn it around a bit. And you have a P or F H sign. You can see the L at the top of the next letter. And the last letter, the closed over one, is M. So N-E-P-L-M, Neplum. Ah, it's not as hard as you actually think. In fact, one of the interesting things as I was preparing for this, I thought, well, I'll just have a look at some of the Hebrew letters and try and trace them back. And you come across one that in uh, Latin is Gimel in Hebrews become uh, Gamel in Greek it's become Gamma, and the interesting thing that occurred from that study is the symbol for that actually is derived from an ancient throwing stick. I wonder if we just got evidence of boomerangs at the Tower of Babel or in the languages early after that. But there's the word where it comes from: Nephilim. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also after that. Now, if you want to put the word giants in it, you have to ask, why are we doing it? Um, perhaps the reason you are doing it is no longer in vogue. Perhaps we need to be more honest and say, Nephilim, they're not necessarily giants. Certainly not if you go by the description in Genesis chapter 6. Ah, there's where it first shows up. A group of 70 scholars, according to tradition, got together in Egypt and made a Greek version of the Old Testament. There were giants. Um, fortunately, the Greeks read the same way the English do. Sorry, that should be the other way around. The English read the same way. <laughs> there were giants in the land in those days, and we're two to 300 BC. Yep, easy to follow because their language is much more like our alphabet, the Greek gigantes. But, you know, being a geologist... The one thing I know is GI has got a lot with the history of the world, but it's a religious word. See how I've broken it up? Gigantes. I'll show you where it comes from. GI from Gia, the earth goddess. Now, if you study your Greek myths and legends, you soon come across Gia. Yes, we now have Gia as the ideal earth. Yep, Gia, the earth goddess. It's a religious concept. 
about how you relate to the spirit beings behind the earth, geology, the word about the earth. And even when they invented those words, yes, that was a religious word invented by the Bishop of Durham, borrowed from the old Greek mythologies. And the bishop, yes, he had a religious view about the earth. God made it. He made it in six days. Sad he's mixed up the, the study of the earth with uh, the Greek mythology there, but it, it's how people do things. Gia was created by the sky god Uranus. Oh, these are all planets. Earth is a planet. The sky god Uranus, um, yep, well, that's a planet out there now too. But to the Greeks, here's what happened. There was then a mating and they had sons. Okay, so two gods, two angelic beings, two spiritual beings mated, even though they have a physical uh, representation and they had sons. Thence the word giants. So when you put a word giant as a translation of Nephilim, you've got to realize it's not a translation. It's actually an interpretation. Hence the modern trend. Let's just go back and transliterate it because that avoids the, avoids the anomaly of saying these word giants when it doesn't say that. Um, giants comes with a loaded background. Giants is one God mating with another God and on earth and having sons that came down to the planet. Ah, built into your words, be careful, is, is, is a theology built into your words, is a pagan theology sometimes, even in English. I love talking to Bible translators and talking to them about the problems they have in different cultures. And one of our guys was involved in mission work in New, New Guinea, and he said, we, we had real trouble. We, we couldn't think of how to say Jesus was saying, I am the Lamb of God, because they only had pigs. You can't put, I am the pig of God. <laughs> it doesn't quite go well. So sometimes the culture means you've got to find a really crafty solution to get across. King James borrowed the Latin. The Latin borrowed the Greek. The Greek comes with pagan connotations, and now we're going back to what it actually says. But who were these supposed biblical giants? The first ones that get that name? Yep, back in King James again. Noah was 500 years old. There's the first oddity. He has kids when he's 500. He begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Hmm. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took wives of all which they chose. Hmm, interesting. Oh, sorry, my dog just came into the room. Excuse me a moment while I put my dog begging for food out. Come on, dog. Back you go. <laughs> we apologise for this mid-session break. <laughs> Technical difficulties, folks. Please bear with us. There we are. Took wives of all which they chose. So something's going on that's not exactly uh, up front when you go and you take a wife uh, any what you chose, the women don't seem to have much uh, much say in this. Now, we do know in Genesis chapter 6 that we have a break here between chapter 6, verse 2 and verse 4. There's a warning. And the Lord said, man's days will be 120 years. And you can add up all of the years between Noah, who's just popped in at 500, and then when the flood comes, roughly 100 and so years after that. But in my old Bible, 
the uh, words of God here are in red. And the association is God gave this to Moses. Moses wrote it down. But how would we even know that? Because Moses' name never appears with this record. Did Noah write this down? How do we know? Interesting to ask all these questions because these are some of the questions I asked Joe as we did our Bible study. They're going to be laid out for you in the book that we deal with on giants. There were giants on the earth, said King James, in those days. Just because it's culturally acceptable doesn't mean you have to run with the word giants. Just because the newer versions have swapped back to the transliteration still doesn't tell you what they were. It may give you their name that they're known by. So let's see what else we can find out about them. What happened to these first lot of so-called giants? When did they live? Well, Adam was 6,000 years roughly. Then you had Noah and the giants. Then you get the flood roughly 4,500 years ago. Now, that's the conservative chronology. You may want to stretch it a little because we do know that each of the people mentioned in the chronologies there, we only have their whole numbers. Um, you don't say Noah lived till he was 600 and whatever years or 930 years or 969 in the case of Methuselah. Was it 969 and one year or 969 and one day? Um, you've always got to allow that little bit of liberty there. But roughly, the flood was 4,500 years ago. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man in whose nostril was the breath of life. All that was on the dry land died. And of course, there are those who say, but there are Nephilim, yes, there are, Nephilim mentioned over further when you get to Goliath. Yes, they're all descended from Nephilim, and Craig will actually take that on a little later. But are they the same batch of Nephilim, or doesn't the word mean that? Because, you see, there's even the most extreme interpretation saying the only way you can connect the second lot of Nephilim to the first is to do what's done in the book of Enoch and have the giants of such enormous size they would have held on to the outside of the ark and survived. You know, giants that are mentioned in the book of Enoch, 300, 400 feet high. Man alive. Well, we're going to let Diane deal with that. But the interesting thing is they can't have been these Nephilim. All flesh died that moved on the earth. The birds, the cattle, the beasts. Everything that wasn't on Noah's ark died. They drowned. Those who were the mighty men of old, men of renown, all flesh, all men, except for Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives drowned. So a little warning, beware what people say is in Genesis. I say that because I actually have found it very helpful coming from outside the church. I wasn't raised in the church. Yes, in those days in Australia, we had the Lord's Prayer every day at a public school. We had a Bible reading once a week with the pastor who came in. And even the teacher was permitted to read the Bible once a day. Wasn't permitted to tell us anything about it. But I knew some of these things. But now having gone to church, I heard what some of the people said. Okay, what people say is in Genesis. Here's one thing I heard. Where did the ark land? Most people say it landed on Mount Ararat. But you realize the Bible doesn't say that? Genesis chapter 8, the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day upon the mountains of Ararat. Yep, mountains, plural. And you can even get up your uh, Google Earth today and look for the mountains of Ararat. 
there's quite a few of them. Mount Ararat is merely one amongst a few. So be careful. The Bible doesn't say the ark landed on Mount Ararat. People say the ark landed on Mount Ararat. So what do people read in Genesis chapter 5 and 6? Now it came to pass. Yes, Noah's just been introduced. Noah's now 500 years old. He's got three kids. Men began to multiply. Even Noah's family is getting bigger. And I hate to tell you this because many people say, how many millions of people would there have been on the earth after 1,600 years of them all uh, living for 900 years? And the answer is not as many as you think because if you read your Bible, there's not one large family mentioned till after the flood. I'll say that again. If you read your Bible, there's not one large family mentioned before Noah's flood. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Oh, fallen angels. No, the Hebrew word is Nephilim. The King James put uh, um, the, 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 the giants, etc. When the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. So when people read this, they often read into it what's not there. That's what Joe was doing. He'd been told by a pastor, and so he just assumed it was true. And the one thing I'm really grateful for is that I only had a Bible. I didn't own a commentary. And I, I must admit, I'd encourage all of you, read your Bible to see if your commentary is right, not the other way around. Genesis chapter 6, there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when fallen angels came into daughters of men and they bore children to them, which were giants. Now, that's what people often tell me Genesis says. But what does Genesis chapter 6 actually say? There were Nephilim on the earth in those days and also after that. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. The Nephilim were on the earth. Do you notice the when there? When, meaning at the same time as, the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Now, I'm not the first to suggest this. You can find a co the, the, the commentators back past the Reformation saying this, that these are two separate and unrelated things. But you don't need to take my word for it. Read your Bible and ask, what is it saying? Okay. The text actually does tell you the Nephilim lived at the same time as the sons of God. The giants were there because of the sons of God? No. That's not what the, the scripture actually says. The giants were there and the sons of God were there. Now, Joe's going to deal with who the sons of God were and that uh, we are going to deal with the giants, even if you translate it as giants. If giants were the children of the sons of God, then here's how it should read. Uh, by the way, do you remember me telling you they forced me to study English at university uh, as part of an education course for the department? Well, I hated it but I'm grateful for it because I got to understand verbs and adverbs and, and suspended phrases. And I got to understand when there were two thoughts and they were separate thoughts and they were not necessarily connected chronologically. If the giants and the angels and the people, the sons of God were connected, then here's what it should say. There were giants on the earth in those days because the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. But that is not what it says. 
Now, because I'm no Hebrew authority and I willingly uh, bow down to that criticism, that's why I went and talked to our, our Bible translators. Yeah, Dr. Alan Hall, if you don't remember his name, he won an Order of Australia Award for translating both English um, into Aboriginal words. He's the guy that gave many of the Aboriginal towns back their name. And he also translated the Bible into Aboriginal as well as five other languages. Okay, um, so... I really appreciate his input into my life. But I also appreciate people like Jameson, Fawcett and Brown who are way up there when it comes to the experts and look at their commentary on Genesis chapter 6. It's on the grammar. The marked manner in which they, the giants, are introduced is sufficient to prevent them being identified with the sons of God or considered as offsprings of these. They are described as already in existence. So if you want to contend that, then get in touch with Jameson, Fawcett and Brown. I'm sure they'll tie you up in Hebrew knots because they are really, really respected authorities on the grammar of this, just like Alan Hall was and Dr. Charles was. Now, who were the sons of God? Well, I'm going to swap at this point. Joe's going to take over. I've got to actually get myself out of here. I Just thought remember, John, you want to press your Windows key and then yeah. your browser, which will take you back to us. I'm going to close your yeah. slides while I pull mine up. But was there anything else you wanted to say? Nope, that's enough for me to introduce that, Joe. You can take it from there. Hopefully that was helpful so far. All right. Let me just pull up my slides myself and we should be just that about slide, ready to mate, go. it look like Joseph Hubbard was the sons of God. <laughs> Thank <laughs> well, you. Well, he is. I'll go with that. <laughs> Yeah, so we've actually already, and as I sort of anticipated, this is one of the reasons why we said we were going to pause and do um, questions right at the end, uh, because a whole flurry of questions around the sons of God actually just cropped up. And uh, that's the segment which I'm going to be dealing with today. Again, I make uh, no claim that I am a um, expert in Hebrew, but we will be digging into some of the Hebrew and really trying to lay it out. Because as John said, because uh, John was encouraged by people like Alan Hall, I was encouraged by people like John Mackay to actually not fully understand or comprehend, because I don't think anybody on the earth is able to do that or have enough time to do that, but to at least be able to navigate yourself a little way around some Hebrew. And there are abundant tools that are now accessible to us, easily accessible to us, and we can praise the Lord for them, Strong's Concordance and so on and so forth. There's a whole abundance of tools that we can use to actually help navigate this. So we need to ask ourselves the question, who are the sons of God? Obviously, particularly in light of Genesis chapter 3, but actually it needs to go beyond Genesis chapter 3 if we're going to get anywhere to answer the question, who are the sons of God in context of this portion of scripture? So Sam, if you want to chuck my slides up, they should be up and ready to go now. I'm just going to hide that from me there. And uh, here's the piece of scripture we're dealing with. Yes, we're dealing with the old King James here once again. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. This is our first reference to what is known as Benai Elohim, the sons of God. And that's really the phrase that we need to delve down 
into. There it is there, Benai Elohim, which is really a, well, you could say a transliteration of it. Ben, it comes from the thing of son. Nai is of, Elohim is a reference to God, the all-powerful, almighty God. And it occurs in this exact phrase four times in the Old Testament. Um, and it is rendered angels of God in the Septuagint. But we're going to look through not just the exact phrase, but also the context around sons of God, because there's one particular occurrence in the Old Testament that's really rather interesting. Now you have the sons of God, Benaiah him in Genesis chapter 6, we just looked at that, in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, in Job 38, and there's actually a fifth reference as well to Benai, not quite Elohim, but Benai El, which is used in place of Elohim to effectively mean the same thing, the word God, and that's what we need to really get into later. Um, of course, it's not just in the Old Testament. You have reference to the sons of God in the Old Testament. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, it talks about the peacemakers. In Luke 20, the resurrected saints are known as the sons of God. Romans 8.14, believers led by the Spirit are sons of God. Uh, you have the sons of God, the angelic sons of God in Romans chapter 8. And believers are referred to as the sons of God in Galatians chapter 3. So actually in the Old and the New Testament, you have a much wider uh, description of what the sons of God are than just angels. Um, but of course, it then comes up the question of, well, surely in the Old Testament, are we only dealing with things that the sons of God being referred to as angels? But before we do that, just have a look at what the New Testament mentions here, because we're actually going to relate this back to the Old Testament in just a moment. You see, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It says that it's well famous, right? The Son of God, Jesus Christ. But look in uh, Mark chapter 1. Oh, you see the, the Greek there? Um, the Son of God, Theo, the Son of God there? who's the son of God, who made in our image Adam a type of Christ, because we have reference to him as the last Adam, Jesus Christ as the last Adam, to uh, pay the penalty uh, of the sins that was introduced by the first Adam. So we have Jesus Christ being referred to as the son of God in the New Testament. Now that's important because Jesus Christ is actually referred to the son of God in the Old Testament as well. We'll delve into that a little bit deeper as we go. Adam made Adam a son of God. Luke chapter 3, verse 38. The famous chronologies that's there, made in our image. Made by who? Adam being a type of Christ, made by Jesus Christ. All things were made by Christ and for Christ. And Adam being made in the image of Christ, in the image of God, being a son of God, a reflection of God, is also referred to as a son of God in the New Testament. So you don't just have Jesus as a deity being the son of God, you have Adam being a son of God as well. Um, all right, again, Schofield, we do refer to these Hebrew and Bible experts, not because, um, you know, we, we, we're taking their word as scripture, because as we already admit, we're not Hebrew experts here, but it's so useful to use tools like this to actually dig down into what the original Hebrew scripture says. The uniform Hebrew and Christian interpretation has been that verse uh, in Genesis 6 verse 2 marks the breaking down of the separation line, uh, a separation rather between the godly line of Seth and the godless line of Cain, and that failure of the testimony of Jehovah committed to the line of Seth, Genesis 4 26. Uh, for apostasy, there is no remedy but judgment, and we have ref references to that throughout Scripture. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, was given 120 years, but he won no convert, and the judgment predicted by his great-grandfather fell. 
In other words, the point that Schofield is making here is the interpretation that we're using here is not new. Um, and we'll deal a little bit of that later as well. Um, this is actually the generally accepted view throughout church history. And yes, I have to say, when I'm talking about church history, I'm going a little bit beyond what is church history in the Americas. I mean, we have documentation here in our Creation Research Center library of Bible commentaries, uh, which are really useful for giving us a perspective on what people believed in the past. You don't take the comments as scripture, right? They're not inspired word of God, but they are important tools to use in understanding what people actually believed in the past. And you can see we have stuff going back nearly 400 years in terms of Bible commentaries. We have stuff from John Bunyan. We have stuff from uh, John Gill, a famous theologian who heavily influenced people like Spurgeon. We've got documentation that goes back to people like Luther and Calvin and even references to Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers. So this is the standard interpretation through most of history. All right, the real pollution. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Um, you do realize that only sinners need grace. You see, the popular um, thing today is to say that, oh, Noah was the only good man left. Well, I'm sorry, but since Adam fell, there is none good but God. That's what Jesus challenged the rich young ruler about. You see, Noah was not good. Noah was a sinner. He needed grace, and he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You see, the real issue here is that the global judge, uh, the global flood, the global judgment in the form of a flood was always to do with man's sin. It was nothing anything to do with demon sin, angel sin, or anything else. It was to do with Adam's sin that he had introduced. But what about this claim that in the Old Testament, the phrase ben I Elohim always refers to the or the sons of God rather Benai Elohim always refers to angels all right well there's our Genesis 6 verse 4 there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bare children to them which were of old men of renown you see that i've highlighted in bold two uh, phrase words there giants and the phrase sons of God all right let's follow this down through um, some Hebrew, okay? There's our Hebrew. Remember, we're reading from um, right to, to left here, uh, unlike left to right as we read our English. Um, and hopefully you can all understand that, because I can't, so let's take it one step further. There's our transliteration. Um, transliteration, John already mentioned this earlier, it's the Hebrew words and letters put into their equivalent English letters. And you can start to see some things here. Can you see the word Nephilim uh, kind of highlighted in uh, bold at the beginning? Can you see Benai Helahim? There it is there in the second version of the bold. Ah, oh, we're starting to break this down a little bit. Well, what does Strong's Concordance tell us about these? Well, the word giants in the King James Version is transliterated as Nephilim. There's the reference. The sons of is Benaiha. Uh, Elohim is the word God. And so you have the giants are the sons of God. So you have a connection between these things here. Um, giants, Nephilim, sons of God, sons of Benaiah, God, Elohim. All right. 
take it one step further. Um, Nephil, as John has already dealt with some of this, Nephil, Nephil, uh, from the Old Testament, properly a fella, a bully or a tyrant. It's actually from the old root word Nephal, which means to fall. So you've got fallen ones. Uh, Im is a, is, a, is a plural. It puts it into the fallen ones or to ones who have fallen. A great variety of applications, it says. Um, not anything to do with size, by the way, as John's already pointed out. Not anything to do with giants. But uh, you find that the nephal word, that's the root word of nephilim, is a primitive root to fall in a great variety of applications. Again, um, literal or figurative. Not actually anything to do with giants or size. So we can rule out the nephilim area, rule out the nephal, rule out the neph. Let's go on to the sons of God. Uh, what is referring to when it talks about the sons of God, Benai Elohim. Benai Elohim spells of sons of God, as we've said four times in the Old, uh, Old Testament, and it refers to Christ, refers to believers, and refers to angels in these four separate occasions. What are we talking about? All right, Proverbs chapter 30. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in its fists? Who hath bound the water in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? Oh, yeah, this is in the King James Version, and I love the King James Version with all of its beautiful language. Who has done these things? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. I wonder what his son's name is referring to. Well, let's ask ourselves the question. Who has ascended up into heaven or descended? Who has gathered up the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? Ah, we're actually dealing with a reference to God. You see, Christ is the Son of God as well as God the Son. See, Jesus Christ is referred to as the Son of God throughout both the Old and the New Testament. Um, take it one step further. What about believers? Well, in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 states, For you are all the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans says, For as many as were led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So certainly in the New Testament, it's referred to as the sons of God. But let's really get in and deal with this claim that Old Testament sons of God always means angels, particularly that phrase, Benai Elohim. Okay, Isaiah chapter 43, 1 to 7. I am the Lord, the Lord Jehovah, Yahweh. That's the name of the Lord. I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel. I have redeemed thee. I will say to the north, give up and go to the south. Keep not back. Bring my sons from far, every one that is called by my name. Well, there's Isaiah 43, 6 in the original Hebrew. There you can see it. Again, we're going to take it one step further. There it is in your Hebrew-English transliteration. And what do you notice? Benai. Ah, there's that phrase, sons of. Benai, my sons, from Strong's. Ben, son, same as what is used in Genesis chapter 6. Who are these sons? Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Thus says the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, I have redeemed thee, I will say to the north, give up and keep, and to the south, keep not back, bring my sons from far, every one that is called my name. The Lord, I am the Lord thy God, and he is calling them his sons. 
These are the sons of God. In what reference? Angels? No, to the children of Israel, to the believers. Hmm. Take it one step further again. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine, for I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Saviour. Verse 43, my sons. Again, a reference to the sons of God, which are the believers. Um, sons of who? Elohim's son. It's there clearly. It's the sons of Elohim, Baal Elohim. All right, well, what about Old Testament believers? Well, we've dealt with part of this, but let's go one step further into some more of the Old Testament and see if we can really narrow down to this exact phrasing, Benai Elohim. Deuteronomy 14.1. Again, there's your Hebrew. There's your translation. What do we see there? Benai Yahweh Elohim. Ah, we've actually got a much closer phrasing to the original Benai Elohim that's found in Genesis chapter 6. Um, in fact, we've actually got a word in the middle there, Yahweh. You'd probably know what it is. Okay, so we've got Benai, uh, Benai Ha. So you've got the sons of, which is a noun. It's a masculine plural, if you want the technicality there. The word Yahweh here is actually a noun. It's a masculine noun and a singular noun, but it's a noun which is being used as a preposition. And then you have Elohim, you have God. It's the same word as Elohim. Uh, it's the same meaning behind there as well. Benai Yahweh Elohim. Ye are the children of the Lord your God. That's what it says in Deuteronomy in the King James Version. Oh, if you really want to see the connection here, go to the Orthodox Jewish Bible. Yes, I know it's the Orthodox Jewish Bible and you need to be careful with some of these Bible translations. But what it does do is give you some nice little Hebrew context in it. Remember what we're looking at? Sons of Benai, the Yahweh, Elohim. Um, there it is in the Orthodox Jewish Bible. Ye are the Benai Hashem Elohim. Um, the Benai, the sons of God, the sons of the Lord God, as it often says in the King James versions and our modern Bibles, the sons of Yahweh, the sons of Jehovah, God. Um, all right, well, one step further. And this is really, really gets interesting, right? Especially for people out there who claim that the exact phrasing, Benai Elohim or Benai El, is only ever used in reference to angels. Have a look at what it says in Hosea 1 verse 10. Okay, again, there's your Hebrew. Doesn't get us very far, but let's transliterate it. What do we see down there? Benayel, Benayel Hey. Um, hey, well, we'll get on to what that means in a minute because it's some interesting Hebrew grammar going on there. But we have that same phrase which is found in Genesis chapter 6, Benayel. Um, the sons of Benayel. Okay, we have that. We've dealt with that already. El is a God, noun, masculine, singular. It's the same word as God. It's another version of Elohim. Uh, it means exactly the same, and it's used in exactly the same context as God throughout scriptures. And then you have living, um, which is the hey. It's an, actually an adjective. That's a description of the noun. And most times in the Hebrew, the adjective is actually put after the noun, not before the noun, as we would uh, do in English. Uh, case in point, here it is in English. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons 
of the living God. Again, we've got the living in the middle there, but remember how this is put in the Hebrew, because in the Hebrew, um, the living is an adjective, and that would have been put after the noun. So what does it actually look like? Well, there's, remember, Benai El Hay. There it is in the Orthodox Jewish Bible. Yet the number of the Benai Yisrael shall be as the sand of the yam or the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are lo Amin, not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the Benayel. Ah, sons of God. Now, the Orthodox Jewish Bible is useful for seeing how a Jew would actually read this. Um, and you can compare this to Genesis chapter 6. Ye I, the Benayel, the Benayel of him, the Benai of God, the sons of God, uh, the sons of the God who is alive, the sons of the God who is living. So we certainly have reference to Benayel or Benayel him as the sons of God in Hosea chapter 1. And who is it talking about? Well, there it tells us about the sons of Benayel, the sons of Israel, will be the sons of God. They are the sons of God. Ah, so the sons of God here is being referred to not as angels, certainly not as demons or fallen angels, um, not even Jesus. It's being referred to as believers, the chosen ones of Israel. Our main point so far, in the Old Testament, Jesus is called the Son of God. In the Old Testament, God's people are specifically called the sons of God, using the same phrase and terminology as it is in Genesis chapter 6. What about angels? Well, we'll get on to angels in Job, but even when we deal with the angels that are the sons of God in Job, there's still no reference to fallen angels or demons. Um, let's go one step further. Job, angels, sons of God. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, question yourself. Just as John challenged us earlier to question ourselves, what does the Bible actually say? Does it say, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them because he was one of them? Does it say that? No, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't say that Satan also came among them because he was one of them. It says that he came among them to present them to himself before the Lord. You see, we are clearly dealing with a phrase sons of god which is dealing with angelic beings and the argument is well if there are angelic beings here and satan is among them then satan's also a son of god therefore fallen angels can be sons of god hmm. does the logic actually hold up because it never says that satan came among them because he was a son of god because he was one of them oh for sure he was a fallen angel we get that from other passages in scripture but it's not relevant here if you're going to try and argue that the sons of god in genesis chapter 6 are also fallen angels um you see the real point of job versus satan uh, and god presiding over all of that is that even satan is bound by the will of god he could not touch Job uh, unless God gave him permission to. And even then, he was still bound by the will of God because he could do what he wanted to Job, but he couldn't take his life. Hmm. Okay, the real point here is that Satan cannot do anything without God's express permission. So no, we're not dealing with fallen angels that God goes, oh no, now what am I going to do? I'm going to have to send a, a, a global flood to wipe them out in order to, uh, you know, preserve the godly line and this, that and the other. And 
actually really making a mockery of God at this point um, because you're claiming that he didn't see this coming. In fact, it goes one step further because not only did God see this or whatever or see all things coming, um, he, Satan can only act by the express permission of God. Hmm. Actually, it's important getting things in context sometimes. All right, where else do we have sons of God? Job chapter 38, verse 7. When the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Um, all right, well, let's ask ourselves this question of angels as men. Because we're dealing, clearly dealing with angels uh, in the book of Job. But what about angels coming as men and mating with women? Can angels be seen as men? Hebrews 13, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It certainly seems that they can do. In fact, we have an account that angels can appear as men. You have a case in point with Lot. Genesis 19, there came two angels to Sodom at even, and uh, Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. Lot seeing them rose up to meet them. Oh, by the way, little biblical warning here, right? Um, you remember the account of Lot who left Abraham to go and to settle? Where did he go to settle? Because it wasn't in Sodom. It was near Sodom. There was the good land, right? Okay, skip forward a few chapters and where's Lot now? He's actually in Sodom. He lives in Sodom and he's sitting at the gate of Sodom. Be wary of putting yourself in the way of temptation and the way of evil. Lot did and he didn't go into Sodom, but he went near Sodom and very quickly he ended up in the middle of Sodom. So a little biblical warning there. They entered, it says in verse 3, into his house and he made them a feast and they did bake unleavened bread and they did eat. The angels are eating, the angels appearing as men. Uh, but before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house around both. And they called unto Lot and said to him, Where are the men which came to thee this night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Um, that's have ungodly relations with them, to put it lightly. Um, these are people, angels rather, uh, well, these are people who saw these angels as men and didn't know who they actually were. But let's relate this back to the Nephilim and the sons of God and the daughters of men. You see, if the Nephilim, or rather the sons of God, were good angels, let's face it, they wouldn't commit the sin of taking carnal women as their wives. And if the Nephilim or the sons of God were actually evil angels, they were fallen angels, the question needs to be asked, would they ever be designated as sons of God? Especially as every other reference to angelic beings as sons of God is dealing with the unfallen angels, the ones who are serving God that Satan had to come along. And you have references to Jesus as a son of God. And he's certainly not a fallen angel. In fact, he's not even a sinner. And you find that the believers in God, the followers of Christ, the followers of the one true living God are also called sons of God. And we have a promise that we will be sons of God. Same as in the Old Testament, Hosea 1.10. Uh, and we are found righteous in the eyes of God because of Jesus' sacrifice. So actually, when we're dealing with these evil angels, the sons of God who fell and came to earth and mated with women, you have to ask the question, if they really were fallen even evil angels, would they ever have been described in scriptures as the sons of God? Um, here's another piece of evidence, biblical evidence that's sometimes used in order to argue for the angels, uh, sons of God being fallen angels. Jude 1.6 says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness uh, into the judgment of the great day. 
Well, again, ask yourself the question. Are you seeing things that aren't really there? Does it actually say in Jude that the angels left their spirit dwelling to mate with earthly women? No, it doesn't. It says these angels kept not their first estate. Well, what was their first estate? To serve God in heaven. They departed from their first habitation or place assigned to them for some reason, probably having to do with Satan's rebellion. They abandoned their appointed place, their habitation, and assaulted their creator's domain. Little speculation here, but it's traditionally viewed that um, Satan, Lucifer, fell and a third of the angels went with him. Um, you sort of have reference in scriptures as archangels. We have uh, Michael as an archangel. We have Gabriel as an archangel. We have Lucifer as an archangel. So it's likely that God has designated originally three archangels, one as a messenger, one as a warrior, one as the chief musician. It was the musician who fell, Lucifer, and a third of the angels that served under him fell as well but it's a little into speculation there but the reality is we know that there are fallen beings and we know that satan is a fallen being and there is no reason why he would ever be called a son of god you see the term sons of god according to again another expert hebrew scholar here certainly does refer to angels in the book of job but in all of these cases these are unfallen angels faithfully serving god so you can't use this as an argument for the fallen angels in Genesis because they're not alike. These are unfallen angels that we're talking about here. Some hold, says Schofield, that the sons of gods in Jude 6 uh, were angels which had not kept their first estate. Um, it's sometimes asserted that the title in the Old Testament is exclusively used for angels, but angels are spoken of in a sexless way. No female angels are mentioned in scripture, and we're expressly told that marriage is unknown among angels in Matthew 22. Uh, and key point, um, it doesn't say in Genesis chapter 6 that the angels came, the fallen ones, the sons of God came and raped women. It says that they came and made wives of them. That's a real key point if you're dealing with this here, because we're expressly told that angels don't make uh, take in marriage. Even if fallen angels could make themselves appear in human bodies, why would they want to marry women and settle down on earth? It's a good question. Certainly their wives and neighbours would detect something different about them and this would create problems. The emphasis, as, as Warren Westby rightly says, is that in Genesis 6, the emphasis is on the sin of man and not the rebellion of angels. And it never says that the flood was sent because of the sin of the angels or anything to do with the sons of God and the daughters of men. It's expressly because of man's sin. Uniform Hebrew and Christian interpretation, as we mentioned at the first of my little section here, has been that verse, Genesis 6 verse 2, uh, marks the breaking down of the separation between the godly line of Seth and the godless line of Cain. All right, what have we seen so far? The term sons of God is used for Adam, Jesus, angels, and all born-again believers in the New Testament. And the term sons of God is used for Jesus, believers, and angels in the Old Testament. It's never defined anywhere as scripture as fallen angels, particularly not the angels in Job chapter 1, uh, because these are not fallen angels. These are unfallen angels that are serving God. The only way you can get to the assumption or you can get to the argument that these are fallen angels is you have to first assume that the claim is true in Genesis chapter 6 and argue from that assumption uh, as if it is a self-truth and the argument fails very strongly 
at this point. And finally, I'm just going to make this little point, which again, the historical church take, it's actually an important way in sometimes wrestling through these. We encourage you to start with scripture and stick to scripture, but it can be useful to see what the historical take on this is, particularly like John was doing earlier in terms of looking through some of the history behind the word giants and things like that. Well, we've already pointed out what Schofield have said about the uniform Hebrew and Christian interpretation. Let's look at a few other historical comments. Um, Steinman, one position that holds that the sons of God are angels and cites Job chapter 1 verse 6 and 2 verse 1. We've already looked at those where this phrase is used to describe members of what? God's heavenly court, not of fallen angels. Uh, view is widely held among, and this is a key point here, widely held among modern scholars, especially those that believe this account is based off of mythology from the ancient Near East. Uh, that's a really important comment there, because the view is held widely amongst modern scholars, that is, unchristian scholars, secular academic scholars, who believe that this account is based off of mythology from the Near East, especially um, as they would also argue things like the account of Noah's flood is based off mythology. Why is this theory popular and um, because let's face it it's originally a pagan account from the pagan greeks um comment his comments diamond's comment on the sons of god being faithful worshippers uh, as we hold um ourselves is this position held by some of the church fathers such as augustine and also by the reformers such as luther and calvin in other words this is a very old idea one that was held by church fathers and reformers as well. It's not something new that John Mackay and Joseph Hubbard have just come up with overnight. But I'm going to finish there and go back to John now uh, for another comment because we're sort of moving on through this program and uh, we will come up to questions uh, in a little while. So John, back okay. to you. Throw me on full screen please, Sam. Now again, I'd encourage you, um, what you're getting today is a tidbit uh, of what in the end will be a new book and I was talking to the artist yesterday about designing the cover, etc., which will cover a lot um, more more than what we can do in just this brief, well, an hour and a quarter so far. But just so you don't drown in information, because to be honest, slide, slide, talk, talk, um, just go back a bit and do a bit of uh, revision. Read your Bible. That, that's the point that Joe is making. That's the point that I'm making. That's the point that all the others will make this morning. Genesis chapter 6 does not tell you these were big guys. Genesis chapter 6 does not tell you these were giants. These are all in, imposed upon Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 tells you there's at least a second lot of these guys, uh, Nephilim, uh, as whatever. And there's a clue there about why we regard Moses as the author of Genesis. But that will come up when we have both, first of all, the questions, and then we'll round up the morning with a, why does this matter? I mean, is this just Joe Hubbard getting his uh, his, 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 his hot, hot temper off, um, you know, to, to, to justify himself? And, and we would like to remind you about this history of the scripture. Think of Noah, where we started, Genesis chapter 5, last verse. He's 500 years old, and he's the only faithful church on the planet. That's why Jesus said, as it was in Noah's day, not one of Noah's brothers or sisters bothered to believe him. Not one of Noah's brothers or sisters even got on the ark. Check your Bible. He did have brothers and sisters, but they did not 
believe their brother, who's regarded in the New Testament as a preacher of righteousness. Righteousness, not Noah's, but God's standard. And even though Noah was perfect in all his generations, the scripture says he was certainly the best on the planet, but he was a sinner. His whole body was fallen. It happened at the fall of man and everything went downhill, including the genes and everything that would ultimately give to Noah. Noah was not the one you're following. He was following the only righteous one. He was preaching about the coming judgment and about the person of Jesus Christ, who is the creator. Okay, now think carefully of what it would have been like in Noah's day. Okay, Ham, Shem, Japheth, gather your wives. We'll meet for Bible study. And Ham says, oh, Dad, we've read the five chapters for 400 years. Why do we have to have another reading? You realize you are so benefited by having the whole of God's word from Genesis chapter 1 through to Numbers 13, when we meet the second lot of giants, all the way through to the New Testament where Jesus comments on Noah, all the way through to Hebrews that says Noah was a faithful man. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, right the way through to the judgment upon everything in the book of Revelation. Okay, so that's roughly where we've got. Um, and Joe's mentioned a few times about the flood. So let me just take you back. I'll try and get myself back on here again. Here we are. Okay, the flood. Are we up on this, Sam? We're ready to go. Good. Okay. Who, what is Genesis 6, 1 to 8 actually about? Was the flood sent to destroy the giants, the demonic offspring? Um, by the way, um, did you notice how Joe said they took wives and they married them? Marriage is a legal good procedure. If they were just going to be totally evil, they would have taken whatever women they wanted, but they didn't. They took wives. There was a legal agreement going on here that was acceptable in God's eyes. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, this is everyone else except for Noah. I mean, you know Ham's going to turn into a rotten egg later on. So Ham was not on the ark because of how righteous he was. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, the sinner. The Noah, the man who knows there is one righteous and he's not. Noah, the man who preaches the righteousness of both the judge and the savior. Now, one of the ways I learned from people like Dr. Alan Hall and the others to analyze something, particularly if you want to translate it into another language, is check what the, the substance is about by counting even just the words. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 8, which leads up to the flood judgment. You find the word Lord and he seven times. You find the word man four times. You find the word Noah once. You find the word giants, zero. You find the word angels and demons, zeros. So if you want to figure out what the flood was about, because it is common out there, it's not universal amongst those who believe the, the giants were the offspring of fallen angels, but the it's very common, uh, particularly if you go to Pentecostal circles, Baptist, uh, American churches of some uh, you know, charismatic derivation, etc., or the old uh, brethren circles, you will find them saying the flood was actually sent 
to destroy the demons who'd infiltrated the godly line so that Jesus Christ uh, couldn't come as, as a perfect being. It would all be messed up of God's plan. So God sent the flood to get rid of them. Okay. The reason for the flood judgment never mentions anything regiants in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It never mentions anything redeemers in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It doesn't even blame Satan. Did you catch that? Because you find there are so many Christians whose opt-out is, oh, the devil made me do it. Well, the sad thing is Eve couldn't claim that. Adam couldn't claim it. We are never allowed to say that. Um, I, as a sinner, I made a choice. Yes, the demons might have whispered in my ears. And don't get me wrong, demons are active in the planet today. And that's why the Paul writes and says, beware the doctrines of demons. And they may whisper in your ears or they may influence you through the worst music on the planet. But they're out to actually influence you to make a wrong choice. Yes, you may end up being demon possessed. Not if you're a Christian, but you can be demon influenced. Take my word for it. Uh, that's what's going on. But the reason for the flood judgment is never associated with angels, never associated with demons, never associated with Satan, even in his form as a servant. The only reason in the Old Testament that's ever given is man's wickedness. All on the planet were evil, except for Noah, the righteous man who was perfect in all his generations. The flood was sent to judge man because God well, I wonder if he's getting close to that point now where he'd really become sorry that he'd made man and man needed to be judged. And yes, that's why in the New Testament, Noah's flood is used as a coming judgment of all the earth. The judgment of the Satan, the judgment of the fallen angels, that's a separate issue. But you'll find the judgment of the earth, which is mentioned over and over again in the New Testament and particularly in the book of Revelation, is always associated with man's wickedness and the only way out is not Noah's ark, but the ark of salvation through Jesus Christ. And again, whoops, looks like we're missing an end there. Remember that as we read the description in Genesis chapter 6, you are never told what they look like, never given a hint about how big they are or what they are. You've got a clue in the fact that Nephilim is used, and whoever wrote Genesis 6 knew about another batch of Nephilim, and they are never called angels. Joe's study is pretty exhaustive on that and exhausting. And no demons are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6 again. Now, in a little while, um, we are going to have a question time and a whole lot will come up. But my reminder at this point in time is to introduce Craig, who's going to deal with the family history of the Nephilim after the flood. Yes, I've already mentioned that some people say the giants, as mentioned in the book of Enoch, grabbed hold of the ark and they survived and, and they, they gave rise to a separate race of giants which led to people like Goliath. Don't forget your question time is coming up and uh, we will be dealing with all of the things. Well, maybe not all of them. This is an exhaustive and exhausting subject. So Craig and Diane, over to you. I'll get myself off screen here. Thanks, John. Well, my section's very brief, but I, I will start by saying I, I'm probably at the stage a little bit like Joseph was a few years back where th this is a subject I haven't studied in great detail. 
Um, I've been finding the discussion very interesting. Um, I've certainly seen a lot of the stuff online over the years talking about uh, angels and demons and so on. So um, uh, what I wanted to do was just get in my head where the giants and so on are mentioned in the Bible. And even based on some of the discussion we've just had, I think there's a couple of things maybe not 100% right on my slides even, um, which I'll get up now if I can. Thanks, Sam. Okay, so um, one of the things I don't think I've got right um, based on what John was just saying is I've, I've got their Nephilim giants mentioned. I should have just left it as Nephilim. Uh, I've made an inference um, right there and then. Um, so obviously they were destroyed in the global flood um, and Ham and Noah weren't. Uh, so they've obviously existed at the time the Nephilim were pre-flood. Um, we're told that Ham had a number of children after the flood. And I'll just make sure I can click that down. There we go. Canaan was one of them. Uh, we're also told that the Rephaites um, lived in Canaan and these were associated with the giants. But we're not given any specific link that the Rephaites that I can find uh, were specifically um, descendants of Canaan, but it's it's inferred and they can be assumed to be uh, descendants, descendants of Canaan because they were certainly living in the area of Canaan. Uh, and they occurred right through to the time of Moses uh, and Joshua and the conquests of, of the Promised Land. Um, so we, we've introduced to Arba. Um, so Abraham's wife, Sarah, was buried in... Uh, Kiriath Arba, which is the city of Arba. Um, I'm get, I'm, the actual dates are fairly um, uh, fairly approximate here, but uh, Arba is the ancestor of Anak, and the Anakites are referred to during the conquests of um, Canaan as giants. So they're in that that vicinity there somewhere. Um, as we go along, it's likely that the Anakite giants are, in fact, the Nephilim. In fact, they're referred to as that in Numbers 13, uh, where it says, we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. Okay, so we do have a line of people, um, Arba, Anak, and then, in fact, Caleb was given um, the the area and took over the area of son of uh, some of Anak's sons. Um, now, I think that this instance where Caleb has taken out Anak's sons, they can't be his direct sons. They're probably descendants of Anak because we're going from Abraham right through to Joshua and Caleb, which is a period of four to 500 years. Um, and so that's a long, long period for Anak and his sons to live. Um, so I think that it's sort of probably referring to descendants of. So what we're actually seeing here is is a, a line of people breeding that are referred to as Nephilim, which is quite interesting itself. Um, King Og isn't regarded necessarily as an Anakite. Um, he um, was taken out by Moses uh, before they entered, you know, across the Jordan. Um, and he, he's referred to as having a bed 
in the in the order of 13 feet. So this, we're definitely talking about giants here. Um, in the conquest of the promised land, it talks about all of the uh, Anakites being destroyed by the Israelites, except in areas such as Gaza and Gath and so on. And that's actually where the last of the giants that we come across in the Bible um, is referred to. Goliath is from Gath, and he had some some brothers that were likely giants as well. Um, and that's basically the last mention of, of the biblical giants that we've got. So that, that just helped me a little bit uh, putting that together. Maybe it's helped a couple out there just to get a bit of a picture of where giants uh, are mentioned and, and landed in, in the Old Testament. So if you'd like to come back to the group, thanks, Sam. And I'll hand it over to Diane. All right, thank you. We're going over to Diane now, aren't we, for uh, yeah. the next little section on giant growth. I thought we'd have our first question time. I think that's a good idea, yeah. Why does this issue matter? Yeah. Reading the comments that are coming in, some people are struggling. Mm -hmm. Some people think this makes more sense than that. So we'll let a, a, a question time and then why does this matter, which I think will actually shock people. Let's go on to that, yeah. So, uh, Diane, over to you, Giants and Human Growth. Mm. Yes, this was a question that came in on the uh, Ask John Mackay site a while ago. And uh, if I can just go to my slides here now. Uh, right, yes, here we go. This was the, the question that came in. You say that giant animals in the fossil record grew to be so large because they lived for a long time. The Bible says people lived for nearly a thousand years before the flood. If that is so, could people grow to be over five metres tall? Uh, now, five metres is um, about 16 feet, five inches. So we're really talking about very, very uh, large sizes here. All right, the reference to um, our, our uh, comments about the uh, animals being very large because they live for a long time goes back to another question we had sent in, and it's also a common um, uh, question that the sceptics raise. How could Noah have fitted such large animals on the ark, referring to dinosaurs, because where we know from the fossil record, okay, bra brachiosaurs were four stories high, uh, and the ark was only three. So um, lots of sceptics have poured scorn on us believing that dinosaurs were on the ark because they were too big. And our answer to that is that uh, reptiles, amphibians, and some sea creatures can grow throughout their lives. Dinosaurs were reptiles. And even today, uh, reptiles, amphibians, and sea creatures will grow throughout their lives provided they have good nutrition, they live in a mild, uniform climate, and they are free of stress and disease. So yes, we know from the fossil record, dinosaurs were very, very large, but they started out their life small. They are hatched out of eggs. We know how big these are because we have fossil dinosaur eggs as well as fossil dinosaur adults. And so very long-lived animals, could have grown very, very large in the pre-flood world, 
because it was a particularly good environment and uh, fairly mild and uniform. And we're not told how long animals lived in the pre-flood world. We're not given any specific numbers. We are given specific numbers about human lifespan. So that link between long lives of human beings and long lives of animals is a logical one. Um, so fair enough. We are told how long people lived before the flood and it was certainly different to uh, how long people live now. So if you look at the um, uh, little chart here of lifespans, which are meticulously recorded in the Bible, very, very carefully, uh, you'll see before the flood, lifespans bumped along uh, around the, the 900 up to almost 1,000. Longest one there is Methuselah, of course, well known, uh, 969. So, yes, human beings did live for a very long time before the flood. So it's quite reasonable to think that uh, animals did. But going back to humans, right, and does this relate to pre-flood giants? If there were any pre-flood giants of, of that size, does a long life equal a large size for people? Well, we know from observing human life cycles today that human beings stop growing taller in their early adult life. Now, how did that apply in the pre-flood environment? Um, did something change there? Well, the pre-flood environment certainly was different. It was a warm, moist climate without extremes that fits with what we know from the fossil record. There was abundant lush vegetation. There would have been good mutation, uh, good nutrition, and there would have been fewer mutations. We know that uh, uh, one of the reasons our life cycle has become shortened is because we are, we are all now born with, with a mutational load. But we have to remember that in the beginning, everything was very good. There were no mutations. Um, uh, since then, the human genome has degenerated. So, yes, the pre-flood environment was certainly a much better place to live. But there are some things that didn't change, right? And one of them was gravity. The Earth's size was the same. The mass of the Earth was the same. So gravity would have been unchanged, even though the environment would have, would have certainly changed. Uh, now, why does this matter? Well, it does matter in terms of weight bearing. So if we just think of how much, uh, how much does things change do things change if size changes in a supporting pillar? Um, so weight bearing, the ability to resist the force of gravity is related to the cross-sectional area of a supporting pillar, right? So if you think of your bones as being what holds you up, and we'll come back to those in a moment, uh, but let's just think of um, the basic geometry of a supporting pillar, Right, a weight-bearing pillar must be thicker if it's going to be stronger. So if you increase the size of a pillar, right, if you double the size, the cross-sectional area will increase by four times, okay? That's two squared. But the volume is going to increase eight times. In other words, you have eight times as much mass if it's, if it's solid. 
And this is why the proportions of um, the legs of animals does actually change between a small animal and a large animal. So if you look at the body proportions of a mouse compared to an animal, you can't just upscale a mouse uh, to a creature that's the size of an animal and keep its legs in the same body proportions, right? Notice how, how tiny the, um, the mouse's legs are compared to its overall body proportions, whereas elephants do have legs which are like pillars, right? Very, very thick and chunky. Uh, now, if we look at uh, wild animals there, uh, people have pointed out that giraffes actually have quite thin legs for their size. Um, and uh, scientists have actually looked at that. Uh, that's uh, thought to be rather a sort of anomaly. After all, giraffes are taller than elephants, but their legs are uh, uh, amazingly thin. Um, that is because they actually have uh, some extra help with their bones. Um, it's not just their bones that hold them up. They do have some very strong elastic ligaments in their legs, which help support their weight. We've written about this in our fact file, so you can find some more details about that. But let's go back to uh, human beings, right? Animals uh, like giraffes and elements, uh, elephants rather, do, <laughs> do actually have four legs, so they can distribute the weight uh, a bit better, and it also helps with their balance. But humans are vertical creatures, which means that our legs have to support our body weight and when you are running or walking, part of that, um, that movement, that cycle, uh, involves your whole body weight being held up just on having to be held up by, uh, by one leg. So the leg bones really do need to be strong if you're going to grow bigger. So we do have a problem. Bigger bones means bigger muscles and ligaments. So we have bigger soft tissue needed to uh, hold the bones together and to move them. Now, bones, muscles need more blood supply. Bone is actually a very dynamic tissue in, in living creatures. It's, it's not dead at all. Um, you have blood vessels coursing through your bones um, because your bones are being constantly remodeled to uh, cope with the forces that are impinging on them. Uh, now, if you have bigger bones, bigger muscles, bigger ligaments, all of those things need their blood and nutrient supply and their oxygen supply, which means your heart and your lungs have to work harder. So can you see a sort of vicious cycle growing there uh, once you get over a certain size? The extra strain on the entire body becomes too much. So for that reason, human beings are actually designed to stop growing taller as young adults, right? If you think of the growth cycle uh, that you go through, you go through a growth spurt, a time of rapid growth during adolescence. So after you reach puberty and you begin the um, sequence of events that uh, get you to um, reproductive maturity, you go through a growth spurt, a time of rapid, uh, a rapid growth, and but then you stop. Now, in women, that usually stops uh, during the teenage years. Um, you know, some women just don't grow at all after they're about 15. Uh, a lot of women don't. Some men are still growing in their early 20s, but most have stopped. 
by the time they get to their uh, their very early 20s. By the time you get to the age of what's called physiological maturity, when all of the growth and maturation processes are complete, uh, and I'm sorry to tell you that somewhere in the mid to late 20s, so we're all, <laughs> anyone older than that, I'm sorry you're over the hill, uh, but I'm talking about myself there as well. I'm well over the hill. But, uh, but by the time you get to that age of physiological maturity, you are not going to grow any taller. And there is a good reason for that. Now, you may grow horizontally, um, depending on various other things, but height is definitely limited in the normal human growth cycle. It's a built-in function. So how is that done? Well, we need to look at how bones grow. So here is um, an X-ray of a knee uh, showing you the bottom end of the thigh bone, the femur, and the top end of the tibia or the shin bone. And bones grow in length from growth centers, which are not at the very ends of the bones um, where, where they form the joint, but uh, they're set back a little bit from that. So if you see a child's X-ray, uh, and this can be a bit startling for parents who don't know about their uh, the biology of bone growth when they see a child's X-ray and they think, oh my goodness me, it's falling to pieces. No, it's not. Those um, translucent lines across the ends of the bones are actually where the bones are growing. And the reason that they are translucent to x-rays is that there is cartilage there. So the bone is still solid, that's, um, but cartilage is not mineralized, so it doesn't show up on the x-rays. Um, bones show up on x-rays because they are mineralized because of the, the calcium mineral. So while you are growing, you have these growth centers which are just a little bit offset from the ends um, there and they will add length to the bones. Now, the bones also grow in thickness from uh, underneath the, the surface uh, on the sides there. But to grow in length, that comes from these growth centers which are just offset from the ends there. But by the time you get to adult life, those actually close over, right? They stop producing new cartilage, which then gets mineralized and is eventually replaced by bone. Uh, they close over and the bone, be the whole bone becomes taken up with bone tissue and it won't grow any longer. So if you uh, look at an X-ray of an adult bone, the growth centers have closed over. In, in young adults, you can actually see a line where they used to be, but eventually the bone gets completely remodeled and uh, it will not grow in length at all. And the, even the remnants of where that line was has been lost. So no matter how good the environment is now, no matter how long you live, how much exercise you get, humans are designed to stop growing in early adult life. And uh, so uh, maximum height for healthy human beings seems to be somewhere around the six to seven feet, um, maybe a bit higher than that. Uh, if you look at some of the uh, sort of elite basketball players and that, that they can be over seven feet and they can be well and truly healthy. These days, giants who are uh, taller than that, it's usually because of some sort of hormonal problem or some sort of uh, disease, which is a whole other issue we won't go into. But if we can come back to us now, 
Um, we've probably covered so many different things with theology, Bible study, history, biology, that there's probably a great big raft of questions. Um, so if we can come back to us. There certainly is a whole load of questions going in. So, Sam, it's that time of the night. Over to you as we delve down through some of these and um, we'll uh, we'll uh, grab in and, uh, and, and tackle. So... Excuse me a moment. Have we told them where Craig's disappeared to? Uh, we haven't, no. I've just noticed that he has disappeared. <laughs> okay. Craig's actually leading a field trip up into the mountains today. They're uh, looking for trilobites in Tasmania. And uh, so he's got a bunch of folks up in the cooler ranges uh, on the north uh, half of Tasmania. So that's where he's, he's off to today. So pray for him and for great success we wouldn't mind a giant trilobite, by the way. The biggest one I've seen is about a metre and a bit across. So unfortunately not in my collection. But it'd be great if they found a giant one there too. Mm. Sam. Mm -hmm. There we go. It would help if I was unmuted. First dibs by power of proxy, John. There you go. Living up to your reputation. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. Okay. So let's do some thank yous first of all. Uh, we've got George Bond coming in with 50 Aussie buckaroos. Five times 10 equals $50, uh, $50 coffee and ice cream for five. Thank you so much. Oh, George. that sounds nice. God bless yeah. you. Doki uh, Doki as well coming in with 99 US centuries, a smiling face with sunglasses. We've also got Neil coming in with 10 British buckaroos. A great presentation. Thanks, Neil. Much appreciated. Uh, also got uh, Douglas Boffy coming in with five British buckaroos character holding their head in their hands saying incredible incredible there you go um, uh, and just seeing if there's any more thank yous to do uh, have I missed anything nope that's all good uh, right so let us do a question or two uh, let's have a look and see uh, this is the first one that came in. Uh, Doki Doki Bible Club coming in with this question. Have you heard the skeptic objection using also after that against the global flood destroying those outside the ark? I have um, come across it. Hmm. Have you come across that too, John? I mean, the, the easy yeah, answer... It sort of goes round and round with the yeah. Book of Enoch and the giants holding yeah. on. and uh, it's all It's so confusing a, a concept that it really, uh, yes, we've heard about it, but the the it, it is so confusing to argue against. You've got to pull everything apart, and the person usually raising it is raising it so they won't get an answer. Uh, that That's where yeah. that question comes from. Ask them to define what Nephilim is to begin with, and you're yeah. on your way into, right. into challenging them. I mean, it really does seem that rather than we're dealing with a group, we're dealing with more of a, um, a state of man at this point it's not something that is um it's certainly got no reference in the name to size or to race or to anything like that um we're, we're dealing with those that have fallen the ones who have fallen is the basically as closest you can get to a translation that's why so many of the bible translations don't translate it at all they just leave it as a transliteration so um i have come across it just ask your skeptic to define what nephilim is and you'll find that it's a self-defeating argument yeah there's a question there sam from noah's fossil farm that would relate directly to what Diane was saying. So could you actually bring that one up next? Uh, this one here? No, this one? Yep. 
Yeah. Yep. Perhaps the science of today in regards to how big things could gr uh, could grow does not apply to the pre-flood world, which we know was a much different world. Okay. Um, let me comment first, because Diane's already just finished the section. She can come in afterwards or anybody else. When you say that the conditions or things like that are now different, so the science would have been different, you need to carefully consider what, what governs the rules of science, right? So that when you look at the biblical picture, God has stamped his nature on the whole of creation. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So therefore, the law of gravity doesn't go around changing its mind and all of a sudden you're sliding up a hill. Um, it's got a fixed concept because God is fixed, right? So that when you look at the little phrase, God stamped his nature upon even the living creatures, we reproduce after our kind because God doesn't change. So the same God who ruled for marriage in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with Adam and Eve is the same God as today. So therefore, when the homosexuals say that things have changed, no, they haven't. God has remained the same. He's just as much opposed to homosexuality now as he was at the Tower of Babel, at, at, Babel, at uh, Sodom, uh, any of those places, right? He has remained unchanged. So there is no evidence that the physical laws or the chemical laws have changed, particularly because there's that little phrase, we reproduce after our kind. So once God had created us back in, in Adam and in Eve, you get to know why he, why Jesus said he, can, he even knows the number of hairs on our head. It was built into the algorithm that was put into Adam. And he's got the best computers on the planet, can calculate it straight away as to what that can actually do in a fallen world. So when you look at the history, the only trend you see is from good to bad to worse but the actual basic science doesn't change, right? So what you were looking at today with gravity, what you're looking at is how biology behaves. You can sit down and predict, well, what could I fix to make it do better like it used to? But it's the science which, in essence, remains the, the paradigm that stays the same. Diane? Yes, yes. The um, human beings are designed to reproduce after their kind. So the, um, the basic biology would be the same. It's just gone downhill uh, a bit or quite a lot, actually. Uh, but that basic life cycle of um, the growth pattern, growing through childhood, going through a growth spurt at adolescence, then stopping in young adult life, that would have been the same. Now, it may have been stretched out a bit. After all, with those long lifespans, we don't know sort of how old people were when they came to reproductive maturity, but um, but certainly by the time you get to reproductive maturity, you have stopped growing uh, in height. And uh, because um, the environment was very good, the average height probably was higher, uh, probably somewhere between six and seven feet. Um, but get meters or 16 feet, um, not even uh, if the environment is very good, depending uh, in terms of the uniform mild climate, the nutrition being relatively free of disease and uh, and fewer mutations. Degeneration would have started back there, but there would have been fewer mutations. Um, 
but the limits to growth are not related to that sort of degeneration. They are actually related to the, the laws of physics and chemistry and, and basic physiology in terms of how to, um, to maintain that size um, <clears throat> with the uh, blood circulation and muscles and, uh, and, th and things like that. So, uh, so yes, even though the environment was a lot better, it wasn't that much better. The 16 feet giants are still, still in the fairy tale <laughs> sort of range, mm. uh, you know, like Jack and the Beanstalk mm. and the big yeah. BFG and <laughs> things like that. Uh, just not physiologically possible, yeah. even in the best of environments. There is a question there, Joe. On there's so many questions to ask. Would you consider doing a part two? Um, the answer is yes, we might, but wait until we finish the the crunch point at the end of it, because mm -hmm. we've sort of skimmed the surface, and we've got interesting questions like Shogi War. They're saying uh, Nephilim does not mean tyrant. In reality, have to correct you, bro. Um, you live down the road, so I can I know where you live. If I have to come and get you, um, your your tyrant is why. Uh, our first English translation actually used the word tyrantes, right? It actually does have that meaning. Look it up in your concordances and you find it is an ancillary meaning, a meaning of Nephilim. Uh, that's why it says they were renowned, meaning they were famous, famous in a negative sense. And that's why uh, the, their first English translation from the Hebrew uses the word tyrant and then King James swaps back to the word giants because it's influenced by the Latin, etc. Even there's a break with the Catholic Church, but there's still that influence. And the Latin the Greek is influenced by the pagan philosophy. Yeah. So you've got to be so careful with the historicity of some of these um, words. Perhaps we should just quickly um, deal with a couple of the comments that Sandy C has made about line of Seth, uh, daughters of men, line and so on and so forth. Just to comment on a couple of these because I think that'll lead quite nicely into our sort of why does this all kind of matter um, and just by the way we kind of ran through a, a sort of like a, a rough discussion script before we started and we've still got like about five or six points that we haven't <laughs> even got to so yes I think a, a part two is probably uh, worth considering at the very least but also just to remind you that this is based off of what is it now, John, 20 years worth of study mm -hmm. um, that was being pulled together and I've been involved in it for the last sort of uh, six or seven years. And uh, we're getting all this stuff pulled together into what we are going to try and be one of the, the most detailed and comprehensive books on this topic, looking at not only, because it goes into such wider things, because all of a sudden when you start talking about this, you're into the difficulties of translations versus transliterations versus how the Hebrew would understand it versus putting it into the English, and the, the complexity just explodes. So it is important to get the full and big perspective on this, as well as the real, why does this matter, um, which is what we're going to be dealing with just shortly so sam maybe we pull up a few of sandy c's questions just through joe because of the time i'm going to recommend we just do one and then we finish off with why does it matter particularly oh. since you've just promised we will do a part two well consider anyway yes yeah. <laughs> go on sam let's just do one 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 quick comment and then we'll round things off all right then well i've just put in a comment at the uh, at the at the bottom there i'm try. Uh, this is me by the way this wasn't joe i'm trying to keep my head above water with all these questions and i myself am confused like the stream for part two so make sure you like the stream guys and we'll get uh, a part two 
and uh, alleviate some headaches uh, in the uh, in the audience. Uh, we'll and do a part three. Douglas suggests a part three as well. You know, do you know what? We might as well just write a whole like concordance. Let's write a book about this. it. Yeah, 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 just, a, good idea. just a yeah, massive yeah. tome. But, you know, one of those ones where you have to slam on the desk when you get anyway, it out of your library. Because we, we are time machine. Let's, let's, right, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's do this one. Uh, if the line of Seth was righteous, why did God destroy them in the flood? Okay, uh, can we just sort of pause in our present day world to ask one question? You have a look at Adam and Eve. You have a look at the so-called godly line that leads to Noah. You have a look at Noah and his offspring. And obviously only one of his kids is a believer in the God of his fathers. And then you go all the way down through Abraham. You get to Jesus Christ and his salvation. And ultimately you get to John Mackay called of Christ. whose name is written in the, the Lamb's book of life. And so I know where my future is. And it's not in this fallen, corrupt world. I'll be honest, I'm looking for a time, uh, even as an Australian, when we see a new heavens and a new earth, it may not abound with kangaroos and uh, burnt and sunny land or boomerangs or divisions over Aboriginals and, and race and things like that. But it will be a restored new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and there is no uh, crying or tears in that land. So there's the big picture. But in between, we certainly have some godly people mentioned right now. Let's take Noah, for example. It says Noah was perfect in his generation. And then it finishes that section. But Noah found grace in God's eyes. Why? Because God's message that Noah had been preaching for 100 years was only believed by Noah. Most of you really didn't catch it when I said Ham was not on the ark because he was a believer. Ham was on the ark because his dad was a believer. God deals with families. That's point number one. Um, when you look at Shem and Japheth, Shem certainly turns out to be a believer, but you know nothing of him before the end of the flood. You just know he's there. But Noah, no, he wasn't perfect because even he needed grace. So in the ones we think of as the godly line, whether it's back with Adam, whether it's post-Noah, or whether it's Abraham leading up to Christ, these are all sinful men, right? Now, at any time after Adam sinned, think carefully. God warned Adam that in the day he sinned, he would surely die. And then he shows his mercy by actually removing Adam and Eve from the presence of the tree of life so that he cannot eat and live forever. Adam is now doomed. He's already spiritually dead. He soon will be physically dead soon in, in, the, in the big picture a thousand years later. But to the Lord, a thousand years is just like a day. That's a good application of that verse there. So when you look at Adam, he could have been judged, wiped off the earth at that point. But God in his mercy already has a plan and he is going to work through certain people appointed from before the foundations of the world. I know some of us struggle with the sovereignty of God and, and versus free will, etc. Run with what the Bible says. Christ was already sacrificed. He picked a way to bring Jesus Christ to earth as well. He wasn't actually a descendant of fallen men. He was the son of God. His mother was Mary. But there's no human men in his is, is family history okay so we've got that interesting conundrum there but you've now got john mckay sinner saved by grace but yet to be honest the wages of sin is death i deserve death right this moment right because i'm a sinner 
I'm not a perfect person. I'm not a holy person. I wish I was. I'm only made holy by the righteousness of Christ. In the same way as any of you who are the worst sinners on the planet, if you're not yet Christians, you too can be saved because Jesus died to take your sin. Right. And that's the purpose why these guys were not wiped out, whether it's just after the time of Adam, whether it's just after the time of Noah or whether it's Abraham. I mean, look at some of the things these guys did. In reality, David kept as an example of a man whose heart was always right before God. Yeah, sure. Bathsheba, name it. Right. Um, I, I'm sorry. God deals with us sinners. And that governs the fact that I, John Mackay, am a son of God. And that's what Joseph was on about. But anyway, Joe, I think it's probably time we dealt with that last little issue um, because we are running away on time. My poor we really are indeed. We're already on the, uh, on the hour mark here. Um, yeah. Well, let me just start off by kicking open, and I'm going to really let John, because I've got some stuff prepared, but uh, we don't have time to go through the slides, which I've done on it and look through another uh, deep look into Hebrew and so on and so forth. But... Let me just start off with this concept, and it has something to do with the origin of babies, um, because we actually had this little comment last week from Diane, uh, or, or the week before, about um, babies being more than biology, particularly in light of the supreme being that is God, the sovereign overall, who um, is, is, is decreeing. You do realize that um, the Bible is explicitly clear that only descendants of Adam can be saved, all right? Now, that has some really serious implications when it comes to things like these um, these sons of God, daughters of men and the offspring. What are we actually dealing with here? Because I see actually um, Noah's Fossils Farm has just put in about the concept of being genetically perfect. And that's one of the arguments. These people were now genetically corrupted. Therefore, they couldn't seek salvation or couldn't receive salvation. That's why God had to send the flood. Well, my challenge to you will be the same as John's challenge, which is go back and find you in scripture where it actually says that. But John, when we're dealing with this concept of the descendants of Adam, those who can and can't be saved what's the real connection here with the sons of god and daughters of men particularly in light with is there any potential heresy going on here okay well uh, perhaps i'll launch off from the fossil farm um noah genetically perfect sorry he died when he was 950 years old he was not genetically perfect uh, everything fell the scriptural teaching of the fall is absolutely imperative it's part of god's plan to remove man off this planet, we have to die because our genes just can't cope, right? This is a problem the Russian communists under atheism could not come up with a solution to. They said man is programmed to repair himself, to actually live forever, but we still die, right? In reality, there's a problem called sin, which actually ruins any concept of genetic perfection or spiritual perfection. So keep it in that context. But when you go back to Adam and Eve, and uh, yes, I can even see now why we need a part two. <laughs> it's it's getting, getting to be really encouraging having a look at all your comments. These are the questions that I asked, of course, over the past 30 years, and they're important questions. So keep them coming in. Sam will store them up. We'll, we'll treat them again. When Eve falls pregnant, remember what she says? I've received a man-child with the help of the Lord. When the people of Israel are in captivity and uh, the Pharaoh is out to destroy them, he's afraid at the next election there'll be so many of those pesky Jews, he'll be voted out or revolted out or anything. So he actually does everything. 
He increases the men's workload. He cuts their cuts their diet. Everything he can, which he knows, limit limits productivity in terms of having kids. And the scripture says, and the Lord increased. <laughs> I'm sure the poor men coming home from work absolutely exhausted, getting their bowl of little little mule, um, uh, couldn't figure out where these babies were coming from. Okay, the scripture says you receive a child with the help of the Lord. Now, the minute you start to say demons can have children, then you end up with the following conundrum. If God is not the author of this child, if this demon who the Bible says comes from the angels and they do not get marry nor give in marriage, they don't have sex, they are genderless, except they're all called men, they're all called male, there's no female angels except on your Christmas tree, so get rid of them, uh, you, you will find that the angels themselves uh, are not capable of that in any description that you can find. They may physically uh, um, manifest and they may rape people or things like that, but back in Genesis, it says they took wives. Now, I made this point, many of you missed it, wives is a legal term. It's a term used by God for Eve. It's the same Hebrew word. God gave Adam a wife. And therefore, you find when the sons of God took wives, they are taking a legal thing. They just didn't take a woman. They took a wife. This is a legal institution that's God honoring. So get rid of the idea that these are fallen angels. It's not there at all. But if you do want the fallen angels to actually have children, then you have to realize these children are the offspring, not of the sons of God anymore. They are offspring of the angels you're proposing. They have no connection to Adam, right? They are neither the sons of God, nor are they the sons of Adam. Now, this is an impossibility because the Bible says life is purely a prerogative of God. And the Bible says when he sends forth his word, the animals conceive. If he withdraweth his words, they fall to the ground and they die. And the same teaching is made for people. You will find that if you want to get pregnant, yes, we have all sorts of nifty ways that we can try and help you these days. But, you know, even uh, Leah and some of these others who needed to have kids and Hannah said, I've received a man child with the help of the Lord. So can I encourage you the importance of this deals with where do you think children come from? Because aren't you robbing the high God, the sovereign God, the creator God of one of his characteristics and ruling him out of the picture? And I hate to say this, but many of our conception clinics were inventing methods and quote unquote, their aim was to remove God from the picture. Well, they haven't actually done that because they borrowed sperm from fertile men and borrowed eggs from fertile women, and they just simply sidetracked the procedure but used exactly the same procedure that God has used. But their aim was to actually remove God from the picture. Can I suggest that the reason this is so vital is more to do with that issue that you are attacking the sovereignty of God and his, uh, his desire to actually bring forth life or his right to actually remove it. Joe, any comments? 
One final comment just from uh, Sandy, which I'll comment on off the back of what you've just said, John, where it says, yes, their offspring cannot be saved. That's why God destroyed them. Again, an encouragement to go back to scripture and actually see, well, why did God destroy the world? Because you look as hard as you like, you find no reference to the flood judgment being because of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Uh, if you want to find exactly why God saw the flood, look to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Well, after any reference to sons of God, giants, Nephilim, or anything else and the lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually and the lord was sorry that he'd made man number one and it grieved him in his heart the wickedness of man number two and so the lord said i will destroy all nephilim fallen angels and everything else off the face of the earth now it doesn't say that it says i will destroy man whom i've created from the face of the earth both man and beast creeping thing and birds of the air for i am sorry that i have made them but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Um, as soon as you get into, oh, these offspring can't be saved, that's why God destroyed them. Number one, a warning, you're now adding things to scripture which aren't there because the Bible never says that the fallen angels and Nephilim was anything to do with why God sent the flood. And number two, as John has made a warning as well, question yourself, what is this concept, what does this belief actually do to Jesus Christ, to the Lord God Almighty as the sovereign being over all when it comes to things like babies, offspring and so on and so forth. Um, so really be careful and think about some of the truth, some of these things. And again, the encouragement which we've done all the way through this program and we will continue to do through all programs on this subject and others as well is to go back to scripture and see what the scriptures actually say. Um, do angels have blonde hair and blue eyes too? Um, <laughs> Uh, well, they have lots of eyes, some of them anyway. I don't know about blue. <laughs> you want a biblically accurate angel, it's not going to look good on the top of your Christmas tree, I have to say. But anyway, uh, any final comments or words from you, John, before we uh, finish uh, up? Just, just make sure they go to creationresearch.net or ask John Mackay, click on fact file, click on search. Quite a bit of the giant stuff we've done is already there. Mm -hmm. But yes, keep your eyes open, get, put yourself on our mailing list, because only there will you find out when this book comes. And we thank you for your input. Your questions are vital to how we shape the end result of the book. So over and out, is at the end of the day, what we're here for, we're here to then come and provide this kind of research and comments and discussion for you. So um, we'll uh, take a, a, a big detailed look in a lot of these things as we continue on forward. And Lord willing, we'll have that. We're really going to try and push uh, on that book. That'll be um, John, uh, myself and Diane. And there was actually one other guy very quickly, John, do you want to just mention the other guy who helped a lot with this research? Um, yes, Taylor. 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 Who am I Taylor. talking about? Yeah. Oh, Taylor. Yes. Ian That's Taylor. Right. Yeah. Ian Taylor. Yes, mm. Ian Taylor went to be with the Lord many years ago now, suffered the same thing that my poor wife is suffering dementia, but he was a godly, uh, godly man and a good student of the word and uh, a little bit out uh, to the left wing for many people because he was a history buff. And he upset many of his colleagues by saying, you need to go back and study what the ancient English said. Here's how we really got the word Carboniferous, you know, things like that. So Ian was a, a, a good um, mentor uh, to many of us who've looked into the real background of all of this. Yeah. And so uh, it'll be uh, a lot of his work that we'll be using 
as well in this program. So thanks all so much for joining us. I know it's been a big topic. I know we've flown along at a million miles an hour. And yes, we've barely scratched the surface in terms of going uh, as deep as we could do. But it just sort of shows you how deep you can actually go into this kind of a topic and a discussion. And look out for that book that we're now going to be producing on this. And yes, we're taking on board a lot of criticism and a lot of disagreements. And that's an important part of actually trying to wrestle through some of these issues and actually deal with some of the these discussions. Same topic next week, I'm not sure. Um, we'll probably have a part two at some point, but that's something that is uh, going to be up to the rest of the team to discuss and work out. But <laughs> I'm sure we'll be back onto this topic at some point in the future. Anyway, goodbye all. God bless. It's been great to see you, and we will join you again next week as we carry on with a topic um, of some description, <laughs> I'm sure. So catch you later, folks.